This yes. is hell. Okay, then. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. If you're white, you've likely visited white relatives in an all-lily-white suburb. It's possible that, like me, a white person, you didn't think twice about the burb being so muy blanco. If you thought about it, maybe you considered the idea that people who are alike often flock together, seeking people who are similar to them, either when it comes to race, class, or political beliefs. Uh, But I hate to break it to you, and I want to thank our guests for breaking this to me. Those suburbs are not so white because of some sort of desire to join in with other white people as if they're white because the institutions and society are actively working to keep African Americans out. That's what's really happening. It's all part of the legacy of slavery that has tainted any and all founding documents promising democracy from day one of the United States of America. It's easy to blame the state, but historically the state seems to have been less racist than the citizens they represent. Sure, we can blame the racialized violence of police, but it's not only the tolerance of that racialized violence, it's also even more so the active participation in hunting down, lynching, and killing non-whites for sport and profit historically. The lynchings were applauded by large crowds of white people who would make a day of watching executions and vile mobs who hurled racialized insults, mocking non-white culture, and proudly taking photos of their community killing people then putting them on postcards so potential tourists everywhere will know that your community throws the best lynching bees, which is what they are call- they were called. And uh, repeating it here nauseates me as much as the first time I read that phrase when reading our guest's work. Returning to This Is Hell to explain the history of racialized violence in the northern reaches of the United States in just a little bit, we will be speaking with Africana Studies scholar Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who wrote the Al Jazeera op-ed piece, Totalitarianism, at 38th in Chicago. A Minnesotan lie, Minnesota's don't-you-know country of hockey tryouts, picket fences, and swing sets has blood on the leaves and death marches in the cracks of the sidewalk. Yannick is assistant professor of Africana Studies at Knox College. You can follow Yannick on Twitter at Further Black. You can hear our interview with Yannick from last year when we discussed another Al Jazeera op-ed piece he wrote titled, Black Liberal, Your Time Is Up. Yes, tell the world that we are fed up, but Black Liberal, know that we are finished with you too. Just go to thisishell.com and search on Yannick because we have had far too many people on the show with the first or last name of Marshall. So just search on Yannick, Y-A-N-N-I-C-K. You can find out more about Yannick at yannickmarshall.net. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week, I think. Maybe, probably not. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far? Uh, if anybody wants a Sharpe Terrier mix, uh, let me know because I have one peeing in my house right now. <laughs> uh, sometimes you escape your house with the in-laws in town and you wander around your neighborhood high and you end up uh, rescuing a dog. So where did you find the dog? How far away from your house? Like two blocks in an alley, just wandering around at 9 o'clock at night. He was just wandering around. He wasn't sitting somewhere, laying down anywhere. He was just walking around. Yeah, it followed me home. That's so crazy. I have a dog now that I 
don't want. <laughs> if anyone wants a dog, let me know. There's a lot of deer in the neighborhood, and somebody posted on a neighborhood Facebook page about how deer will take their fawns, their babies, and they'll go put them in a place, like hide them in a corner, and then they go wander off and eat. And so a lot of people in the neighborhood have been finding these fawns laying around, and they call up animal control to take them away. But in reality, you should just not touch it. You should just leave it there. And they showed a picture of a fawn sleeping by a dumpster over in, in, here in West Ridge. So I, I, I just found that fascinating. I've never seen a I've seen deer in the neighborhood. I've never seen fawn before. It's just weird. My week was nothing but counting the days until I feel safe going to see my doctor because since getting my second dose of the freaking vaccine, I've been constantly exhausted with repeating dizzy spells that really have me worried because my visual disability is due to a neurological problem not an ocular disorder my late brother had the same neurological problem I have and he ended up with another neurological problem multiple sclerosis while my brother's doctors told him the two were unrelated I'm still freaking out because the last thing I need is to get MS on top of being legally blind and completely colorblind with intense light sensitivity and limited death perception Jesus Christ, this is hell. More importantly than any of my misery and potential new misery, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? What medieval era trade is coming back soon? What <laughs> medieval trade is coming back soon? Get your answers in in the next uh, 30 minutes. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our swag right now by going to This Is Hell. Dot com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff gives a baby talk. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. This week's question is, what medieval trade is coming back soon? What medieval trade is coming back soon? We got an email at chuck at thisishell.com from Marina yesterday who writes, Hi, Chuck. Love your show and wanted to drop a few guest ideas. One thing that I wish was discussed more in your analysis of why we live in hell are the experiences of non-human animals, especially the billions that we torture to death for food. You've had Alex Blanchett on the show, which was awesome. There is so much more fantastic work happening in this space that, in my honest opinion is essential to truly understanding our diabolical hell. Two guests I'd recommend to you are... Okay, I don't know if I'm going to get through both these names without screwing them up. John Sanbonmatsu and Dinesh Wadowell. Hey, that was pretty good. Both brilliant critical animal studies theorists. I've attached both of their books here. There's so much more interesting, radical, and imaginative than any of the utilitarian BS which wrongly gets all the credit for animal rights. They're totally unsparing about the hell we've built, and I think they're perfect for your show. Thanks for all you do. Warmly, Marina. So Alex Blanchett was on the show a year ago to talk about his book, Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life in the Factory Farm, and you can find that interview at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Blanchett. Marina is clearly far more well-versed in animal rights than I am because I am not certain what she means when she refers to the utilitarian BS which wrongly gets all the credit for animal rights. And Marina... If you are listening or anyone who is familiar with animal rights and you can explain to us what Marina means by the utilitarian BS, please tell us because that sounds like the kind of thing we should avoid. The guests that Marina suggests are again John Sanbon Matsu, who is editor of the 2003 collection Critical Theory and Animal Liberation and author of the 2011 book The Postmodern Prince 
critical theory left strategy in the making of a new political subject. He's working on a new book on the humane meat movement, but there is no date yet for its release, and it seems like he's been working on it for about 10 years now. The other guest Marina suggested, Dinesh Wadawell, is author of the 2015 book, The War Against Animals, which gets us back to the bigger question of discussing books that have not been published in quite a while and are not easy to find right now online. The only copy I could find of War Against Animals was used, and they were asking $77. So Marina, or anyone who is interested in this topic, if you could point us to some newer writing on the topic, that is not, as Marina said, the utilitarian BS, which wrongly gets all the all the credit for animal rights, please send us your guest suggestion, and we promise we will follow up. Coming up, Snow White, Minnesota is not only a myth, but it's a lie that is actively promoted. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week. And we will have Jeff Dorton in the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff gives a baby talk again. This week's question mail is what medieval trade is coming back soon. Leave your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us or email us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell when we think of Minnesota. It's hard not to imagine a State filled, with pe- state filled with people as white as the blankets of snow that cover the state for at least six months every year. But that whiteness was not attained simply because Minnesota reminds descendants of Scandinavians of their home country and were naturally attracted to the state. No, the racial makeup of Minnesota is part of the long process of ethnic cleansing and genocide, and that history repeated itself in the murder of George Floyd. Here to give us a better understanding of Minnesota's violent genocidal history that revealed itself again in the killing of George Floyd, returning to This Is Hell, Africana Studies scholar Yannick Giovanni Marshall wrote the Al Jazeera op-ed piece, Totalitarianism, at 38th and Chicago. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Yannick. Uh, Thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation last time on your article about how people were fed up with black liberals when we were talking about your Al Jazeera piece back last year. And people can find that interview by searching on Yannick's name at our website, thisishell.com. And you can follow Yannick on Twitter at Further Black and find out more about him at yannickmarshall.net. You write that Minnesota, like every other state, begins with a lie. Explore Minnesota tourism ads present the state as a natural paradise, as if the U.S. military occupied land of Minnesota Makosh is God country, some blessing bestowed upon God's own settler colony. So in neighboring South Dakota, as Sioux Falls KELO-TV reported this week, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem says nationally schools need to stop teaching children to hate their country. Monday, the governor turned to social media to announce she's the first candidate in America to sign the 1776 Pledge to Save Our Schools. The pledge is on a website put together by a group that supports former President Trump's education vision. Noam also teamed up with Ben Carson to send a statement to Fox News saying Trump's 1776 commission offered real promise and that they want to return to a truthful patriotic education that cultivates a love for our country. Noam is quoted saying she is doing this to be proud of America and our beginnings and to make sure that they have the facts. Some historians said Trump's 1776 report was one-sided and contained inaccuracies. President Biden signed an executive order dissolving the commission. Yannick, is it possible to be proud of the United States and have a realistic history-based understanding of the United States? Can we both be proud and honest about U.S. history? 
Uh, yes, if you uh, if the pride that you're speaking of is white pride, um, what a patriotic history is um, outside of just being obviously um, the banner of totalitarian education everywhere, um, because patriotic already implies a type of bias or prejudice um, or disemboweling of, of history uh, in order to be able to shape uh, facts and truth and evidence to fit a narrative. Um, a patriotic history is by definition a non-history and it is um, just propaganda. Um, but if what one is interested in is a pride of a settler colony or pride of a white supremacist space or, or um, a, a project, then uh, one can definitely be proud of a white supremacist project by um, consuming a white supremacist propaganda. There's no, there's no um, limit to how much you can be proud of white supremacy. Um, all you have to do is basically continue, continuously imbibe uh, from media, from churches, from families, from uh, schools, from textbooks, all of the work uh, white supremacist uh, history history has um, has given to the public. Uh, that in itself is the definition of both patriotic education and white pride. What explains to you? Why do you think it's not called out as propaganda more often? Why do why do we fear using that word? It's almost as if. We're back in 2015 in the fear of using the word fascist. Why do we have this fear of calling out this white supremacist history as propaganda? I think as, uh, the moment you start um, like speaking about propaganda, um, the moment uh, you lose the, the, the effective nature of propaganda, it's almost as if when you wake up, um, when you're dreaming and you continuously live in a dream world and then your mind starts thinking about um, whether this is a dream, you almost immediately wake up. Um, critique is the, the antidote to uh, propaganda or critique and serious thinking and analysis is the, um, is the antidote to propaganda. And so um, if you consider, continue to think of education as simply education and not education for, not education for a purpose, not education um, that is aligned with certain type of state's objectives or uh, white supremacist settler objectives, um, then education continuously can seem uh, uh, wholesome and just an objective view of, of the world. Um, but obviously, you can't have an objective view of anything if you begin um, organizing your study and organizing your consumption of, of information to fit uh, the lines of uh, pro-state um, uh, love. So propaganda is um, what happens when education itself is state education and education that is flattering of uh, the colony is put into question. Propaganda is um, the definition of education in colonialism. So why is it so attractive to so many people? Why do people like Governor Noam? Or, you know, there's uh, on Fox News, they're constantly putting on these documentaries that are like there's one called something like the true story of socialism about how socialism started with Adolf Hitler. Why is there this kind of why are people attracted to being taught propaganda rather than being taught actual history? 
because history, um, truth, um, will spell the destruction of uh, a state built on lies, a house of cards. Um, what is attractive for people that want to continuously brainwash and manipulate uh, young minds into service of, of the settler colonial project. Um, that the reason that this is important is so that you can make sure to, for generations upon generations, um, suppress any possible uh, political dissent, um, whether that be material political dissent, people actually doing work to, to end the settler colonial project, or just uh, destroy the affections to the uh, settler colonial state. Um, so you need to shape the generation's minds through education, but also through family, also through uh, churches, etc. You need to shape um, a generation's minds so that they can salute, they can hail the, the state. Um, otherwise, you'll have a bunch of critical people saying, is it really okay um, that uh, people are hanging from trees? Is it really okay that people are, uh, were burnt alive? Is it really okay um, that land continuously uh, uh, serves the accumulation of, of families that uh, were working in, in the destruction of, of indigenous and other peoples? Um, because these are questions that should not arise if you want to continuously have a population that will salute uh, the project of continuing accumulation and continuing destruction and management of um, political dissidents and uh, bodies and people that are considered um, marginal and not worth uh, help and um, service. And I can see how that kind of training could undermine your ability to engage in dissent, despite the fact that freedom of speech is guaranteed. Well, you can't really exercise that freedom of speech if you haven't been educated in a way where you can counter the popular narrative of the powerful. That's really fascinating. You write that Minnesota is a lie, the okie-dokie of the folksy folk. The state of black cherry ice cream, honey crisp apples, and blueberry muffins was host to the largest mass hanging in U.S. history. 4,000 cold Minnesotans gathered the morning after Christmas 1862, blowing into gloved hands to watch 38 Dakota men be murdered. These 38 were the, own, were the ones selected by the great emancipator, President Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, who picked them after studying the transcripts of the often five-minute-long trials from a list of the 303 Dakotans sentenced to death. Minnesota is a lie. Is Minnesota unique among the United States, or are all states' official histories based on lies? Um all states, all states are based on lies because um, the truth again will collapse uh, the state or at least affection towards the state for people that believe that uh, people should not be molested, tortured, destroyed and burnt alive, etc. Um, all history uh, will uh, destroy the state. So all states um, that somehow have forgotten the voices, the subaltern voices, the voices of indigenous peoples, um, or have their, uh, their these voices quarantined off in spaces where they are just tokenistic uh, history. Um, that is in itself evidence of the lie, because obviously, if there is a dominant history, and the dominant history is the history that flatters um, the killers, then that history is uh, the propaganda that serves the institution that kills. 
Um, so yes, all states are necessarily uh, a lie. And, and also, this is not unrelated to the idea of freedom of speech. Um, because yes, as you're saying, the freedom of speech requires um, the freedom of imagination and freedom of thought. But also, there cannot really be any freedom of speech. Um, because what freedom of speech is, is the ability to speak freely. Um, but uh, this is only determined by what that speech threatens. So if your speech does not threaten the state, um, then uh, you can be able to say whatever you want. That's why uh, certain governments that are always under threat of, of anti-colonial revolution um, would seem to be clamping down more on freedom of speech, whereas uh, the American um, project might often advertise itself as, as the center of freedom of speech, but that just might be because um, freedom of speech will not do any damage to a state that is that has the lie so convincing that um, a clear and present evidence of uh, dispossession does nothing to sway the population away from the affection um, of the settler-colonial state. So freedom of speech um, really should be considered in terms of what is threatening to uh, the state and what is not not um, what you're able to say and what you're not able to say. How dependent is the sustainability of the United States on ignoring, denying the history of genocide? Is Governor Noam and, uh, and her supporters, are they, are they correct in their analysis that the United States cannot withstand an accurate reading of its own history and doing so would be an existential threat to the United States? Definitely. Um, any more than a kidnapper that has raised um, its children in uh, for like 23 years in a bunker somewhere has to continuously tell the children that they are uh, their friends, they are the master or their parent, or they are something good for them. They are dependent on them. They need them. And the children will continuously need to uh, believe this and to accept that narrative. Because once they step out and creep and see the light outside of that bunker, see the, the differences and the, the possible um, questions of the, that uh, master's authority, that kidnapper's authority, um, then the entire project of kidnapping, the entire project of the bunker uh, is questionable because maybe they will uh, think it's time to leave. Maybe this kidnapper is not a good person. Maybe this has been a lie all this time. Um, and so, yes, uh, as long as you can continuously feed uh, the kidnapped kids as much information um, that is flattering to the kidnapper as possible, you have the best chance of, of preventing an escape and preventing a, a rebellion against the entire project of capture. You point out that the so-called blue wall of silence should not be bemoaned as a historical liberalism is wont to do, as a structural imperfection of contemporary policing, but instead be read as in this centuries-old tradition of the American white supremacist secret society. Can white supremacy be reformed out of policing? Can cultural sensitivity, training, and educating law enforcement officials on the dangers of white supremacy eradicate white supremacy from police forces? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't think uh, the reason why people are um, joining, uh, why a number of officers join a white supremacist organization is because they missed the training session to say not to join, don't join um, a white supremacist organizations. I don't think the reason that um, 
uh, people have uh, drugs planted on them or um, they've stopped people um, under false pretenses of like a broken taillight is because uh, the manual doesn't say not to do that. I think um, policing in a set of colonial, set of colonial structure attracts um, the type of people that, which is very different from the advertisement that they want you to do or make a change or do something good. It attracts the type of people that like force, like authority, and like maintaining um, the order as they see fit. And this order happens to be a white supremacist order. Uh, policing in uh, Kenya colony, policing in apartheid South Africa, policing in um, Rhodesia, uh, which is was Zimbabwe, um, always attracted um, uh, white supremacists and people that are uh, apologetic or at least convinced themselves that uh, white supremacy wasn't the main issue to uh, join these forms of these forces of order. And if it has happened everywhere in the world, despite the training manuals that, that exist, I don't know why a training manual, um, training session, um, a lovey-dovey, uh, let's, uh, let's help people, um, race anti-bias session, um, would do anything to shift the general tendency of set-of-colonial policing that has happened since set-of-colonialism existed. So how about, can we just find the law enforcement processes that have their roots in slavery, thus ending racialized police violence, whether that's inside or outside of jail and prison walls? Because you talk about uh, solitary confinement and how that is a legacy of slavery. So can we just find those kinds of things like solitary confinement and eliminate those lingering, the lingering legacy of slavery and thus end racialized police violence? I think that's like um, asking, uh, looking at the hangman's noose and, and associating that particular form of rope or twine with uh, the twine that has been used in like the 17th century. And so maybe we can switch the type of rope um, so that uh, we can eliminate the problematic legacies of being associated with that, with that uh, violent past and to use a different type of rope um, to, to uh, execute uh, people. Um, that wouldn't make sense because the entire uh, system, the entire scaffolding um, is the problem. The, the instrument is the problem. And it's been an instrument uh, to maintain uh, the power relations, an instrument to maintain uh, the possibility of accumulation for the haves against the have-nots. It's an instrument to maintain um, the uh, oppressed and prevent them from any possible uh, revolution or just uh, simply freedom. Um, to, to snuff out the threat of black freedom, the instrument was, um, was, was produced. So to find a way to be able to kind of uh, fix the rope, uh, polish or sweep the scaffold, um, change the hoods, um, that would not do anything. Um, it only does something if one is convinced and adamant that the problem of uh, management instead of colonialism is not um, the the violence and racial violence uh, that it necessitates, but uh, the uniforms, the uh, aesthetics, the um, surface surface level things of the of that instrument. That is not. Uh, what the problem is. The problem is uh, the need for set of colonialism to manage to disappear indigenous uh, power and voices, uh, to disappear uh, uh, freedom for the people that have been exploited, exploited, and to maintain a system that benefits uh, the haves and the white.
you show how racism has been institutionalized through the law, and you write about the Dred Scott case, writing that Dred Scott was forcibly relocated to Minnesota from a plantation in Southampton County, Virginia, after being marched through several of the colony's forts. He was eventually taken to Fort Snelling in Minnesota by the enslaver Dr. John Emerson of Missouri, who was also a U.S. Army surgeon. At his captor's death, Scott famously sued for his freedom on the basis that slavery was outlawed in the area. Winning and losing court battles, enslaved and then pronounced free, the case rose to the colony's U.S. Supreme Court, which pronounced its judgment. Quote, the African had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the right race, white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white men was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. Before we continue with the U.S. Supreme Court judgment, which is insane, in their twisted logic, how is slavery beneficial to the slave? Do you know if that's still believed in white supremacist circles, that slavery was white people doing African Americans a solid? Yeah, um, you you hear it uh, all the time. I think um, one famous social media influencer recently said um, that colonialism was good, and when people when he says that on on the whole good, and when people say that, uh, it's often seen as ignorance or being dismissive. But uh, we should assume that um, they are very much aware of the rubber plantations in in Congo. They're very much aware of uh, the. Uh, genocide in, in Namibia, and that they think that this is good, not that they are ignorant of these things, because these things are publicly available, and, if, and and we shouldn't continuously give them the benefit of the doubt. Bill O'Reilly very recently said, or not too, as recently, said that um, the enslaved people, as called the slaves in the, in the White House, were treated um, good, um, that they were all having a fun time. Um, well, Bill O'Reilly would likely have known um, what slavery is, and so... It is important to not um, not assume that uh, the people that are uh, that are waving Confederate flags, the people that uh, know the history of slavery and suppress it while at the same time saying that it was generally good, suppress the information about slavery by banning books and uh, stopping uh, Africana studies and and critical race theory, whatever else they're, they're, they're banning now, um, that these people are both banning information and also celebrating um, uh, the most violent aspects of, of these systems, um, that these people are very much aware and are in support of the settler colonial and enslavement work of this state. And um, they think because their ideas of black people are a character of the good uh, slave and the uh, loyal um, servant, um, that it is good for black people to continuously be in a position of subservience to whiteness, um, despite the torture, despite um, the killings. Um, this is their position. It is not ignorance. This is their position. The most important thing to know about these white supremacist conservatives is that they have continued they have continued uh, the Jim Crow legacy. They have continued uh, the sentiments of slavery. They haven't fundamentally uh, departed and said, oh, this is entirely um, wrong. Let's try to make some type of new conservatism. They have continued um, the space of the lynching being, and they have continued this position, and they will always continue this position. They're, it's not about ignorance. It's about who they are and who they have always been. 
The U.S. Supreme Court ruling continues Dred Scott was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. This opinion was at that time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race. It was regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics, which no one thought of disputing or supposed to be open to dispute. And men in every grade and position in society daily and habitually acted upon it in their private pursuits as well as in matters of public concern without doubting for a moment the correctness of this opinion of white supremacy. Is this evidence then proof that white supremacy was generally understood, practiced, and accepted by society when the decision was written in May 1857? It, It would teaching Dred Scott in schools be unpatriotic because it reveals the acceptance of white supremacy? Um, The trajectory that uh, white supremacists in power want to continue on is uh, one where the teaching of Dred Scott um, will not be unpatriotic because the treating of black people as property or as uh, having... uh, uh, roles of subservience to uh, white interests and, uh, and the project of the settler colony um, is a good thing. And so teaching Dred Scott is, um, will be patriotic as long as the racist uh, notion of blackness, black people uh, prevails. Um, it is not that uh, they are wanting to suppress um, the history of, of the black enslaved what they what they would like is that they can teach the history of the black enslaved as a a positive history um, for uh, America to say that uh, there were people happy in their enslavement, uh, people happy in their um, in their colored fountains, people happy in their um, their their lives because they're 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 fundamentally suited, almost biologically suited for that life. This has been the argument of um, colonizers that said that the native African um, is happy to be uh, subservient to, to the white uh, planter. Um, it's, or that uh, they are only interested in having posho, which is a small uh, maize, when the white uh, settler in prison should be having uh, chicken and meat, etc. It is not so much that they're trying to uh, suppress history as much as to make sure that history and the uh, racist character uh, characters that uh, that uh, are sideline characters to their story are situated in a narrative of white power and of white supremacy. They want history to be at the service of white supremacy, not the erasure of history in general. And you write that in June 1920, the John Robinson Circus made a stop in Duluth, Minnesota for one day, taking with them African-American cooks and roustabouts. A white woman and man went to the circus, entering the main tent. The next morning, the Duluth police were called by the father of the man, accusing six of the black workers of holding the couple at gunpoint and raping the woman. You write of the alleged rape that took place at the circus and the subsequent arrest and jailing of the accused with the police ordered to put away their guns to protect the mob. The police attempted, it is claimed, to fight the crowd off with their hands, the crowd that was 
mobbing the jail where the three were being held. Seizing three of the accused, the mob performed a mock trial, not that in a white supremacist colony there can be any other kind, and beat and hung Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee from a light pole with a rope that the owner of a hardware store gave to them on the house. The murder was photographed and printed on postcards as souvenirs. Were lynchings not only seen as a source of pride for the community who did the lynching, but did it actually lead to tourism? As that is the point of postcards, to get outsiders to come to your community and spend some time and some money. Were lynchings seen as good business? Yeah, you can find uh, writings um, asking for postcards all the way in South Africa, asking for... um, that they've heard that a problem of race was handled in Texas, and they would like to have a, an image of that. These are the colonial administrators of South Africa um, asking for pictures um, of lynchings in Texas. So it was an international thrill of the white settler empire, um, as well as just the mere fact that there are lynching bees and people gathered um, from near and far Um, sometimes hanging out of buses um, or hanging at the backs of buses to come to see the lynching, um, shows that the pastime, or one of the the most central pastimes, or the stadium of of the killings of black black people, um, was a, one, a a tourist industry, but also um, the spectacle itself was definitional of the town and um, something that people took pride in. Um, so the destruction of black people, the destruction of, of blackness in, in public was um, not simply just the uh, execution of the other, but uh, the performance of white supremacy and white uh, torturous violence uh, advertised to as many people as possible because um, it is not simply the Uh, killing of black people that is desired in the settler empires, but the broadcasting of their deaths around the world or as far as possible. Um, White supremacist um, violence, especially in this era, wanted um, to advertise, um, wanted to to broadcast, wanted to display uh, swinging black bodies. Um, It wasn't ashamed of it. Um, It was for it. Um, One thing, and I'm very separate from Martin Luther King um, for a number of reasons, but uh, one thing I do have to respect is that uh, what the civil rights and what Martin Luther King movement has done is it made people who were saying um, in their letters um, what is wrong with white supremacy. I mean, people obviously like Steve King still say that. Um, What is wrong with white supremacy? Or or they would would say that uh, we wanted to maintain white supremacy. Um, in or we promised to maintain white supremacy in Louisiana, etc. Um, that this was no longer after the Martin Luther King and civil rights uh, movements was not um, all cool, and so uh, the civil rights actually uh, kind of undermined the ability to be able to be proud of uh, these type of lynchings. Um, but as I said, uh, conservatism uh, persisted, and with it, uh, the interest in the public destruction of black bodies, even if it can't be named, even if it now it's said, um, well, you know, they're no angel. So you write that white mob violence, white mob violence directed at the white supremacist state, it deems not sufficiently violent against black and indigenous people is characteristic of settler activism. So were the people more racist 
than the state? And if so, why did the state not accurately reflect the racism of white people? Um, what I think is often too often lost in discussions about um, race and race and set of colonialism is that there are factions to the white supremacist, um, the white supremacist uh, society. Um, there are very often the settlers and farmers, which in the 1920s and 1930s, who wanted um, to do what they will with the uh, with the native's body, the African's body, the black person's body, and there was the uh, administrative state that wanted to have some type of regularity. They still wanted to whip um, black people, but they wanted to have the the image of a type of uh, impartial. A technical uh, whipping rather than a willy-nilly uh, whipping. Um, and so this conflict that was written on the black person, um, this conflict between the administrators, the liberal administration or white supremacists, and the settlers, um, white supremacists, um, very often uh, led to ideas of, of uh, settlers especially, saying that they wanted to overthrow the government because um, it was the government was coddling the native. Uh, they did this in Kenya to the point that um, Britain actually had to send some warships to to show a force, to be a show of force against the settlers. Um, they are so interested in having totalitarian possession of black people that the white supremacist order itself has not gone far enough. Um, so yes, uh, the, what the white supremacist state administrative order wanted to do was to be able to have a type of impartial, very often have an impartial um, technical um, enforcement of, of white supremacy for a number of reasons. One, to uh, have the idea of truth in law or law and order, et cetera, and also just to, uh, to impart uh, the disciplinary function of law to the population so that black people would say, yeah, I can't do this because this is five to 10. Um, which is a very different thing than um, running away from the settler or running away from the settler who would do anything. Um, so these different, these different forces, um, these different uh, ways of, of, of destroying black people um, were clashing. And it is only when uh, they can find peace within themselves, uh, whether that be the Trump administration, the Trump uh, uh, uh Trump-supporting population getting into positions of power, then that, that um, actually melds into a proper white supremacist settler-led state, um, which uh, we see, obviously, the results of that in, in both uh, apartheid South Africa and in America. So if the society, at least, you know, we're talking about the 19th century then, but, you know, let's move forward to today. If the society is more racist than the state, would activists' focus on society be a better focus on ending racialized police violence than focusing on the police in the state? Is the real problem not the police, but who the police protect and why they protect them? Uh, yes, I mean, it does get a little... Um, we have to be a little nuanced because obviously a lot of people who are virulent white supremacists uh, like the possibility of being uh, covered by the impunity that the state offers. Um, remember, Kyle Rittenhouse wanted to be a police officer. Um, so there is this um, going back and forth between uh, white supremacist violence and um, white supremacist settler violence and the institutions of the state and vice versa. A lot of uh, police officers um, go and join white supremacist uh, organizations after they're retired or 
or sent out, etc. So, I mean, these these groups are not fundamentally separate. They're actually uh, just like a, a pipeline between these uh, two forces. But yes, um, one of the problems with even thinking about abolition of the police and prisons is um, an, an imagining that the police and prisons is the end all the, and the be all of um, white supremacist uh, power. Um, no, uh, before the prison was established, there was still totalitarian control over blackness um, before the official uniform constables were in existence, and which is why um, I think that the end road of abolition must be a critique of the entire settler colony, uh, because it is white supremacist society um, that will find any instrument uh, to maintain a white supremacist power, not so much the actual, we shouldn't really be thinking about the, 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 the fly-by-night in, uh, instruments that they invent, um, but rather the entire culture behind settlerism. Um, and this means that abolition must go further than uh, whatever innovative institutions that they uh, establish for this present time. But how much do we need the police for our own safety and security? Because without police, many fear crime will run rampant. And as Fox News reports in Portland, Oregon, New York City and Minneapolis, the uprisings against police have led to crime waves and far more violence than in the past. So are protests against police proving that, in fact, we need police, as Fox News and other right-wing outlets insist they do. Right now, crime, as it is called, is running rampant. Um, I think there's about 3 million people that are uh, kidnapped and held against their will in, in the state. Um, right now, crime, as it is called, is, being uh, is, is, is running rampant. Uh, there is destructions uh, in the ocean, destruction... Um, in the environment um, and violence in, in schools, violence of the school, etc. Um, the, there are, as we mentioned before, uh, lynching bees and people that are, were like thousands upon thousands of participated in the lynching that were not um, caught, were not dealt with, were just let to live their own lives. Um, crime is running rampant. Uh, crime is the existence of settler colonialism. Um, there is no court that is, there is no court, a U.S. court that is legitimate because all U.S. courts are performances of people uh, dressed up on fancy wood, waving settler flags, um, doing uh, the business of performing justice in a place that is evidence itself. It should be in a, uh, the crime locker room itself of, um, of crime. Like the settler state in itself is the evidence of the crime. So if we are to speak about crime running rampant, uh, we have to presume that the crime of the, the continuous crime of the state, the continuous crime of imperialism um, is, is always presented as innocent, whereas uh, the petty crimes um, or the petty uh, fights against property, fights against counterfeit um, uh, fights against capitalism through the use of counterfeit uh, money. Um, these things are, or the destruction of uh, settler property on indigenous land, these things are, are violations. Whereas the lynching bee, the population, uh, the, the environmental destruction, uh, the mass kidnapping and impugned killings of people dressed up um, in cop uniforms, these things are not crime. It requires the invisibility of black life and black suffering and the elevation of property. This is um, the 
for lack of a better word, a perversion of, of white supremacist logic. You also mentioned the discovery of serial killers in the upper Midwest town of simple folks is always said to be a surprise in what was previously a nice place to raise a family. Implied always is that the violent crimes of, say, the inner city black areas are unheard of in the town of evangelical churches, soccer moms, and pine trees. But American suburbs are always evidence of multiple crimes. So in May 2018... Madison.com ran the article, The Most Violent Small Towns in America, which reports violent crime is not limited to large urban areas. In fact, it thrives in towns with lower populations. Here are 27 towns and cities that have a higher per capita of violent crime per 10,000 residents than Detroit, Michigan, the city that leads the way with 204 violent crimes per 10,000 people. Some are suburbs, while others are rural areas. The results are based off the FBI's 2016 crime data report, looking at cities and towns with a population of less than 25,000 people. So, including the list were Saugat and Cairo here in Illinois, and each of the top five towns with the highest violent crime rate of any city in the United States. Those are all located in small town Colorado or California. If, in fact, small town America has 20 seven towns that have higher violent crime rates than the city with the highest violent crime rate. Why do we have this impression that big cities are the sites of the highest rate of the most violent crime? Is it simply based on racism or is there something more to it? Yeah, it's racism. Um, But also, uh, we should just also remember, um, like, this is almost besides the point, because if you were to imagine, say, and the fear now is, is China, um, that China um, just occupied um, uh, America and uh, started um, like bar- breaking through windows, breaking through doors, um, shooting people while they slept, um, taking mass, uh, masses of American population, white American population, and putting them in jail, uh, shooting them on the street with impunity and with the expected impunity. If, the uh, violence of uh, China's imperialist occupation in um, America existed. They burned um, uh, cultures, rearranged um, language or banned languages, banned books, etc. If this happens tomorrow, um, it would be strange to be able to think, okay, well, there is a new established town, a Chinese town um, in Illinois um, that has um, uh, more crime than this established Chinese town in um, Illinois. And to measure that, because what what one would do is one would erase the entirety of um, the Chinese imperialism um, of uh, America. Well, one can imagine because again of the fear of of China, which is obviously just the, just racist uh, xenophobia in general, um, the fear of China. One can see that breaking into people's houses and killing them with impunity are themselves crime, or at least this, them, themselves uh, violent acts that need to be addressed. But uh, and one cannot just brush them over and speak about any type of small town and their, the things that happen there, because hey, there's a whole bunch of uh, destruction and mass kidnapping that is happening on a regular basis. Well. This is exactly what um, is happening in this settler colony. The grand mass of violence wielded against um, the marginalized uh, population is, does not count 
uh, what we think is the, the state that is um, imposed on top of it, um, the records and archives of these states, the ongoing, the goings on of these states. Um, these small towns are what we should measure in. Um, but no, an, a history, uh, an anti-colonial reading, a simple uh, uh, acquaintance with the truth of, of a thing would require one to look at um, the violence that happens beyond uh, these small town archives. So yes, it is racist to say that um, it's the big cities that are, have all the crimes, but it is racist um, in such more of an important way to in make invisible the entirety of the continuously weighted history and weighted as in uh, forcing itself into the present um, of uh, anti-black violence that is the reason for the state. It's not just about the small towns, it's about how is this thing still existing? And let's talk about that historical context and how it affects today. You give the context of lynchings and genocide. How does that historical context, in your opinion, inform you or how should it inform us about the death, the murder, the police killing of George Floyd? For me, um, one of the worst things uh, to happen is uh, people to speak about uh, the trial um, and the conviction of, of Chauvin as um, a first step. Um, by saying that, um, they make invisible again the first steps that have happened before, uh, because there are other uh, police that have been convicted of crimes. Um, but in order to imagine it as a first step, one has to continuously be on a treadmill um, thinking that uh, in, in another two years when another uh, cop is convicted, um, and convictions are, again, a part of this ridiculous um, state practice, um, but an, when another cop is convicted, then they will say, okay, well, this is the first step. So the lack of uh, the, the invisible um, aspects Invisibilizing of, of black history and anti-black violence um, creates a continue, continued sense of first steps, of changes, et cetera, which allows people to think of George Floyd as something, as, as a, a momentous time in history. Um, the uprising definitely, definitely is, but lynching, enslavement, um, uh, parole and probation, um, uh, surveillance in schools, uh, the totalitarian aspects of the federal colonialism has not budged from the first moments of its first light. So um, to mark any specific event as um, fundamentally um, different is by definition to render the entirety of the set of colonial practice, which uh, black people have been speaking about for years upon years, centuries upon centuries, as irrelevant, and to always focus on this next incident. And when this incident uh, passes away, not to say that this incident will pass away, um, to think about the next uh, first step. The, the logic and uh, viewpoint of settlerism, of nationalism, of patriotism, um, requires the burying of anti-black, uh, the history of anti-black violence. And once we remove ourselves from patriotism, from uh, nationalism to the white supremacist state, from uh, saluting settler colonialism, only then we can have a proper 
um, accounting of the violence that exists and to see settler colonialism in the light of, of day rather than uh, continuously thinking, well, this is the first step and this incident, well, this was really bad. Um, settler colonialism is a continuum of white supremacist power and white supremacist violence. And uh, it is clear as day as long as we're willing to see it. Yannick, I cannot thank you enough for being back on the show. I totally lost track of time because of our conversation when I looked up and I realized it was already 55 after. I was very surprised. We've been speaking with Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who wrote the Al Jazeera op-ed piece, Totalitarianism at 38th in Chicago. You can follow Yannick on Twitter at Further Black, and you can find out more about Yannick at yannickmarshall.net. And you can find our interview from last year with Yannick about black liberals by going to thisishell.com and searching on his name, Yannick Marshall. One last question for you, Yannick, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. To what extent is American exceptionalism a dog whistle for white supremacy? Um, American exceptionalism um, is... <laughs> yeah, I would hate to answer this because I don't know... American exceptionalism is the attempt to remove, um, through patriotism, um, American history from um, the general white supremacist, borderless uh, culture. Um, and so it's not really a uh, dog whistle. It is a part and practice of, of white supremacist settlementism because it, it removes, it tries to remove and make unique uh, what is the pattern and what is, is the uh, routine forms of violence that have been going on since... Um, 1400s or before. Yannick, thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it. We're going to annoy you in the future with another interview request. It's great to hear your voice and uh, enjoy your weekend. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. On this week's Patreon podcast, we are sharing an interview we did nearly 15 years ago on a topic that today, 15 years later, is strictly verboten by the corporate establishment media, which promotes the narrative of the powerful imposing their boss's will upon all of us. And that topic that you will never hear discussed in the media is... Walmart causes poverty. When Walmart opens a store in your community, you and your neighbors suffer. Walmart is bad for the local economy. The only thing Walmart is good for is extracting wealth from communities across the United States, leading to increased poverty, inequality, and desperation. But hey, see how cheap this sweatshop-made parka is? So we're sharing our 2006 conversation with Stephen Getz, co-author of Walmart and Countywide Poverty. The study shows how during the so-called economic boom of the 1990s, when Walmart was very aggressively expanding their operations, which drove small mom-and-pop stores, some of which had served their communities for generations out of business, during the 90s, countless or counties that had a uh, Walmart experienced more poverty than counties that did not have a Walmart. Meanwhile, because the email we received from listener Chris B. this week asking if the title of our show, This Is Hell, is figurative or literal, a follow-up from Chris when he asked us the same question a year ago, on Patreon tomorrow I will be explaining why this is hell. Subscribe to the weekly Friday This Is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell to hear how Walmart threatens the communities within which they operate and why this is hell. Again, that's the Patreon podcast tomorrow morning, every Friday, 
10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to our newest Patreon patrons, Andrew T. and Wurt Wenfel, or Werfel, Wenfel, Wenfel, X. Wenfei. Wenfei? Oh, that's an I. Wenfei X, sorry. Thanks, uh, Andrew and Wenfei, for subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell and apologies Wenfei for my horrible vision with their subscription Andrew and Wenfei now get $5 off all of our merchandise which you can find at this is hell.com when you click on support in a few minutes Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth wherein he gives a baby talk I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry this week's question from hell is what medieval trade is coming back soon do you have any responses you want to share now or you want to do that after Jeffy uh, do some of them now, some of them after Jeffy. Cool. Wenful would be kind of a cool name, actually. I know. That's why I thought it was Wenful. What medieval trade is coming back in style soon? Martin F. says, building catapults so we can take dead, diseased bodies and fling them into cities occupied by our, by our enemies. I'm all for that. Jessica B. says, catapult precision specialist. <laughs> Spencer N. says, itinerant besotted friar, God willing. <laughs> uh, I really like that one. Uh, Justin M says barbers are opening back opening back up like mad and will now offer such supplementary medical treatments as humor viscosity measurements, glamour leachings, cross species skin grafts, barber chair levitation therapy, astrological mani pedis, elective amputations, ego massage, and facial reassignment surgery. In addition, the Froyo place next door will be offering free exorcisms with every purchase. <laughs> Neil C says the whipping boy because even he can be blamed because even blame can be outsourced. <laughs> I like that. Christian H. says, does Goop sell leeches yet? I'm in. Clay G. says, Wainwright. Adam K. says, serfdom. Mason W. says, when our crumbling telecommunications infrastructure fails, town criers are going to make a big comeback. Joanne C. says, Catholicism. (laughs) And Jeffy D. says, leper ostracizer. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, email it to us, tweet it to us, but you got to have your answer in by the end, by after Jeff's moment of truth. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week, well, let's make that, all the questions I asked this week were written while I was high, well, except for today's interview. Yeah, I was actually sober all day yesterday. I wonder it was so miserable. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Babies having babies. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I'm a baby. I'm very immature. I lie around like a baby in a bassinet. What is a bassinet? It's a small basin, I guess. If I had a large basin, I'd fill it with hot water and lie around in that. Maybe even mix in some lavender bubbling bath salts. I'm a housewife. A baby housewife. Calgon, take me away. A baby housewife. Gross. That's like being a Minotaur or a Caliban or Aaliyah Atreides. An abomination. A baby housewife. A baby desperate housewife? Nope, that would take too much energy. A baby tranquil housewife. In the 1970s, with one of Satie's Trois Gymnopédies on the stereo in the early afternoon, all my children on the TV with the sound off, a glass of white Zinfandel in my tranquil hand, even though that's really an 80s wine. An 80s suburban housewife wine, to be more specific, so much so identified that it was also known as cougar juice. 
What am I doing in a lavender-smelling bath at one in the afternoon in the 1970s, drinking anachronistic pink cougar juice out of stemware crystal? Whose ranch-style house is this, with all the shag carpeting and the sliding glass door wall looking out on the backyard lawn? How am I middle class? Must be some kind of strange magic. Or maybe I'm a murderer. Got the homeowner's bodies wrapped in black garbage bags wound up tight with duct tape in the kids' room. Maybe I was desperate. Now I'm tranquil. Except for this tweet I'm reading. Do you speak Chinese? Un parentheses intentionally erases the various forms of Chinese that Chinese people speak. It'd be cool if do you speak Cantonese or Mandarin or do you speak any form of Chinese were said instead. Mandarin isn't the Chinese language. It's one of them. Thanks. Heart. Un parentheses intentionally. Do you really think that anyone who knows Mandarin and Cantonese are spoken among different populations in and outside of China would conceal that fact just for the purpose of microaggressing against you? That in fact they would refrain from pretentiously mentioning that fact in know-it-all fashion? How little you understand people. My suggestion is that you stay as far away from them as possible. I mean, why don't we just refuse to talk to anyone who is in any way different from us until we can read their minds and avoid making an error that might offend them to the extent that they unaccuse us of wanting to erase an aspect of them? That's what I'm going to do. If people don't know what the difference is between Yiddish, Hebrew, and Ladino, I'm going to accuse them of unbeing Nazis. I mean, isn't racism already enough of a problem without trying to turn it into a self-fulfilling prophecy? But I guess that's what people thrive on, making obnoxious noises. You know who started all this, don't you? Not the critical race theory academics, no. Not the slave dealers of old, though of course they had a hand in it. No, not the patriarchy. No, not the merchants. Not the kings, not the scoundrels, not even the babies. Although the babies do bear a terrible responsibility for the state of things today, I can tell you. But it's never just one thing, is it? I mean... Economic inequality is about as close to the one thing as things ever get, but even that's not the only cause of human folly. Sometimes it's just an engine of human folly, a punishment for human folly, or a reward for human folly. No, the real culprits are the observational comedians, the Seinfelds of old, the guys who did the equivalent of, isn't it amazing that Chinese people still use chopsticks back in the old days? Doth it not bring thy teeth to the gnashing point when the village idiot droolest upon the hasp of thy flarkin, or whatever? Shakespeare had a few takes he had the good sense to edit out. To sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come. I hope it's not one of those dreams where your fingers are too slippery to get a good grip on the hilt of your sword while a herd of fretful porpentine are almost upon you. You know that dream? And your boots cannot find purchase upon the slopperty earth beneath your feet? I mean, what's with that? Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Why do they make these crowns so heavy and pointy? What's with that? Who are these crown makers? Everyone thinks they're a comic genius these days. Social media was made for the wisecrack. Oh, I'm guilty, no question. Smart-ass remarks and crotchety complaints were my stock in trade long before the advent of Facebook and Twitter. Now they're everybody's thing.
I'm not trying to say racism and xenophobia aren't built into our communication habits in insidious ways. I'm saying don't increase the burden of such insidiousness while pretending to employ a corrective to it. You do nothing but add to the general a-hole quotient of the intraspecies conversation. Normally, I just don't listen to that crap, but every once in a while, it's just too goddamn stupid. I'm glad TikTok and Instagram came along, encouraging people to think of themselves as master photographers and filmmakers so the people who really excel in those areas can shoulder their load of pretending everything's fine in the midst of this Dunning-Kruger avalanche of human output. Back to babies, who in so many ways are the real culprits. Let's examine that word culprit, shall we? Culp to blame, as in culpable, and prit, from the French prêt, as in prêt-à-porter, ready to wear, ready to be blamed, ripe for the blame. Babies come into the world blame-ready. People think they're innocent babies. Oh, nothing could be further from the truth, I assure you. That's exactly what they want you to think. Babies are born liars. I know it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Well, that should tell you something. That should tell you that someone is a master deceiver. If a baby makes a stinky release of odor, do you think that baby is going to admit it? Or are they going to play innocent, as if they've done nothing at all? What is this innocent act, if not a denial? When we know they that deny it, supply it. It's a denial of reality. It's a denial of cause and effect. What is more destructive to rational discourse? What, I ask you. And I ask the baby. And the baby doesn't answer. Typical. Typical baby. Like a mobster exercising Fifth Amendment rights, the baby, if they answer at all, answers with a non-response. It's disgusting. Have you no shame, baby? No, the baby has no shame. You know it's true. The baby has no shame. Stop having these shameless babies. Humans are repulsive enough without being babies. A human is an oily, flaky, viscous, reeking, hairy, excreting thing. A baby is no exception, but they started it. Who was the first person to pollute the earth with their waste? A baby. Which came first, the mother human or the baby human? Obviously, the first baby human was birthed by a pre-human mother. The baby wasn't even created by a human. That's so much worse, isn't it? And then after that scandalous beginning, the humans picked up where the pre-humans left off. And the baby doesn't care. This horrific history in its background, and the baby's just la-dee-da about it, couldn't care less. Shameless. Would it kill you people to do a simple background check on the thing before you bring it into your collective home? I... I can't really blame you, though. You all used to be babies, after all, and you, you know what they're like. Consider the source. Garbage in, garbage out. Yes, the current humans populating, copulating, polluting, and befouling the earth were all recruited from a teeming mass of babies. I mean, what do I expect, huh? I know some of you love babies. But even you must admit there's a lot of room for improvement, but that room usually gets filled with anything but improvement. Now, I admit I'm a baby, but unlike most babies, I admit it. I've got self-awareness. I live the examined life, not the unexamined life most babies are allowed to get away with. Who's allowing them to get away unexamined? Other babies. Babies having babies. Babies having babies. 
Let's have a little humility here, people. Professor Magnificent, with your superconducting super collider, your masterwork of civilization, your prize-winning piece of poo you're so proud of, we're all frightened, wounded, posturing, insecure, defensive, crying, ignorant babies. And that's who's running the world right now, changing and manipulating according to our infantile whims. Oh, we pretend they're well-considered, those whims. I'm sure there are those who even believe they've thought deeply and carefully about what's best for all the other babies they're imposing their wills upon. And so far, we've let those babies have their bottle. Let the baby have his bottle. Let the baby have his way. We must stop that. What could be more reckless than to let all these babies loose on our fragile planet? How could anything not go wrong. And on that note, this has been the moment of truth. Good day. I'm just glad that we now have RICO laws so we can get the truth out of mobster babies. Oh my God, we got a, the baby racket is a real racket. It's a real racket. They're getting away with murder. All right, Jeffy, until next time. But Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Alex, please remind our audience what's this week's question from hell and how and tell us how they are responding. Ladio says fully bonded murder hole operator. <laughs> what the hell is that? I don't even want to know what a murder I hole is. I know the whole thing. Uh, Mark A.S. says cook and rat catcher. <laughs> uh, Josh is that cook? And rat catcher. Okay. I read that as cock and rat catcher. Mm. And so I was thinking that people were going around and getting roosters. Keep that around a murder hole. Yeah, exactly. Via Twitter, DM, email, etc. Hypocritator, old friends Hypocritator says, Iconoclast. <laughs> and Peace Atrebor says, Brought to you by the creators of Smash Hits Palantir and CyberEye, <laughs> the Grand Inquisitor 2000, a disruptive, cutting-edge new surveillance technology hitting the market that not only monitors heresy, thought crime, and browser histories, but also takes the effort out of coercing confessions from innocent people. And Greg G says, Groom of the Stool, <laughs> which, uh, look that job up. Actually, it doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> I don't want to look up that. Too. Groom of the Stool? Yeah. All right. Uh, let me just give you a... Groom of the Stool was the most intimate of an English monarch's courtiers, as- <laughs> responsible for assisting the king in excretion and ablution. Ooh. Oofa. I mean, how long are you going to spend doing that job, though, to be honest with you? <laughs> not, not that bad. I've had worse. <sighs> Any more? That's it. All right. Oh, uh, sorry. Josh L. says, this for that. And then we both get the plague. The answers I liked the most were Sparrow said Incanu. Now, I don't know if Sparrow is referring to an unknown person or thing or an edible predatory freshwater whitefish that is related to the salmon that lives in Eurasian and North American lakes close to the Arctic Circle. So I'm not too sure which of those two answers you meant, Sparrow. I also liked Neil saying the whipping boy because even blame can be outsourced, Bradley saying modern-day falconry with drones to hunt down the homeless and the undocumented, Spencer saying itinerant besotted friar, God willing, Chase responded by saying with how little seems to be done in the way of halting or even slowing down the devastating effects of climate change, I see a future in which bespoke chamber pot craftspeople have the last laugh over the bidet, and Fabio's answer that other people also gave, but at the same time his additional comment made it so great, serfdom, but this time the liege lord is an algorithm owned by a multinational finance company. Alex, anything that you like the most out of those? Paul's like, I'm still uh, reading my groomer of the stool over here. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm torn between modern-day falconry and itinerant besotted friar. What do you think, Alex? Uh, let's go to the friar. Yeah. Spencer, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is send us a message via Facebook telling us what piece of merchandise, This Is Hell merchandise you want. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all of our swag right now. And we will get the whatever piece of merchandise you want to you ASAP. My answer to this week's question from hell, what medieval trade is coming back soon, is, um, sorry, Clay, but screw being a Wainwright. Sure, we'll need carts, but what we'll really need is wheelwrights, because whatever the crisis is that turns the world into a dystopian hellscape, we're still going to need wheels first, then carts. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is spinach because it's a banking holiday this weekend in the UK. And if that does not make any sense to you at all, go back and listen to Monday's show and all will be revealed. Thanks to this week's guests, including freelance writer and editor Robert P. Baird, who wrote the Guardian article, The Invention of Whiteness. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Bobby Baird and find out more about Robert at robertpbaird.com. Also, thanks to historian Trevor Griffey, author or co-author of the American Association of University Professors website article, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching, which Trevor co-wrote with Mia McIver. Find out more about Trevor at Trevor Griffey. And thanks to Andrew T. for suggesting Trevor as a guest this week. And thanks to today's guest, Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who wrote the Al Jazeera op-ed piece, Totalitarianism at 38th and Chicago. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing, Richard Norwood, Jess Lipka for running the board this week, and everything else they do for the show. Thanks to Jeff for another week of moment... A Moment of Truth, and uh, Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History, and special thanks to Theron Humiston, who made it so I was able to have access to this document today. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when we will be sharing our 2006 interview with Stephen Getz, co-author of Walmart and Countywide Poverty, revealing the link between Walmart and poverty, and I will be doing my best to explain why this is hell, but you can only hear that by subscribing at Patreon, patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, do we have anybody confirmed for next week? Uh, I don't have anybody requested for next week. Oh, also, thank you, Cody K, who wrote, uh, What medieval trade will be making comeback soon? Interreligious arms dealers specializing in holy hand grenades. Sorry about missing you there, Cody. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on today's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.